Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. The pound today is rallying on the prospect of the uh, lesser chance of a hard Brexit. Joining us now, we're very glad to say, is Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion editor to weigh in on the latest on Brexit. And I think that probably the most interesting story of the day, or certainly one of them to me, uh, Therese, was the relationship between Joe Johnson and Boris Johnson, two brothers. Joe quitting Parliament because he couldn't reconcile his relationship with his family, Boris, and his view uh, that the UK should remain part of the European Union. What's the relationship like between these two? Well, I think the bigger surprise was that Johnson actually joined his brother's cabinet to begin with. Um, Joe Johnson resigned uh, the, from when when he was part of uh, uh, Theresa May's uh, government over his. Uh, his preference for a second referendum. So he is a remainder, but he wants a second referendum uh, rather than, you know, his position isn't that just simply that that Britain uh, should stay in the EU. He, he would like to have a referendum on it. Now, obviously, that puts him into direct conflict with uh, with his brother, the prime minister. And it was quite a surprise when he announced that he would be, uh, that his, that Joe Johnson would be part of the cabinet. The timing of Joe's resignation is, of course, very poignant. Boris Johnson has just suffered uh, major defeats in parliament. His prorogation strategy, the, the decision to suspend parliament for five weeks is hugely controversial. He is now... Uh, potentially unable to get the election that he wants on October 15th after Parliament was he was not able to get the two thirds majority for that. And then on top of that, to have his brother say, you know, I'm out, it seems to be a sign that this purge of the of the conservative party, um, you know, has provoked a backlash. And, you know, he now has that to deal with uh, on top of everything else. So, Therese, I almost hate to put you in a, on the spot here, but you know, because I'm sure nobody really has a good sense. But what are the next steps here? What do you, how do you think this is going to play out near term? I guess. <laughs> I, I heard someone say, "If you know what's going to happen, you haven't been paying attention." There you go. <laughs> I think that's that's pretty accurate. I, I, so the next step is that uh, Johnson will try one more time to get the October 15th election date, and he'll try to do that by uh, a, a different parliamentary mechanism. You can't bring the same motion um, before in a parliamentary session twice. So. He's going to use a different mechanism. Now, if that fails, and it may well fail, uh, Parliament is suspended, prorogued now until um, the middle of October, and there'll be no further attempt to get that election. And therefore, it becomes impossible to imagine how he would get an election before October 31st. And that puts us into slightly different territory, because remember, Johnson promised he would pull Britain out, do or die by October 31st, an election into November means he's broken that promise. Now, some polls are showing that Leave supporters would not blame him. They'd blame Parliament or they'd blame the EU. But I think the longer this drags out before an election, the harder it will be for Johnson to just uh, come in and and sweep up that parliamentary majority that is the key to him him delivering the Brexit that he's promising. Therese, what political leader in the United Kingdom could potentially get the support necessary to push this process forward? Well, it depends on what process. I mean, that you know, the problem for those that oppose Johnson's plan is that they 
they don't have a, a single leader they can rally behind. Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, is very unpopular, even with many of his own MPs. The other opposition parties refuse to have Corbyn become a sort of national unity candidate. Uh, and the Conservatives also don't have a leader other than Johnson that they would rally behind now. And, and that party is utterly split between its two wings. So, um, you know, the answer is an election could throw up any number of options from a conservative majority, which is what Johnson is betting on, to a hung parliament. It doesn't really solve the problem. So what is the sense of timing here? I mean, is there is there some drop dead date where something really has to happen? Well, October 31st, something has to happen. Either Britain has to uh, receive an extension from the EU. And now, you know, let, let's uh, remind listeners that that has to be uh, unanimously approved by all of the EU's members. So even if one of them, say Emmanuel Macron of France or Viktor Orban of Hungary, some have suggested say, no, we don't approve an extension, that can't happen and Britain crashes out on October 31st. There is the other key date is the European Council Summit in uh, October 17th. And that is the, uh, the the summit in which Johnson was promising to bring back a deal. Finally, closer date that we should all watch is Monday. Uh, next week, Boris Johnson meets with the Irish uh, Taoiseach Leo, um, Leo Varadkar. And that will be very interesting because Johnson has been promising that he will bring um, solutions to this uh, impasse over the Irish backstop. He'll bring alternative ideas. So we shall hopefully see next week what he has in mind and whether there is any possibility that Ir- that Ireland or the EU would take it seriously. Therese Raphael, thank you so much for bringing some clarity to an absolutely chaotic situation. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor covering European politics uh, and economics for Bloomberg, uh, calling us uh, in from uh, our London Bureau. You can read more on this and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion and on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N, go... Let's talk about trade because that seems to be one of the presiding uh, factors when it comes to what direction the markets are going to be in on any given day. There seems to be a little bit more optimism right now because there are talks about talks about talks about talks about getting maybe together to talk about trade. So let's uh, talk to Sean Donnan, who's Bloomberg News senior trade reporter, uh, coming to us from our Washington, D.C. studios. Sean, what actually do we know that has happened in order uh, with respect to moving closer to some sort of trade resolution? Well, I think you nailed it there. We got more talks about talks about talks uh, coming. And uh, we are expecting at some point in the coming week or 10 days uh, or so uh, to see the Chinese uh, send a delegation over here to Washington. There'll be a working level uh, delegation to try and hash out where they resume these negotiations. And that's really the the, the point to stress here. when we when these talks broke down in May, uh, they had 150 pages of text. Uh, they were close to uh, something meaningful on, on both sides, and uh, then the Chinese walked away from that, in part because President Trump wasn't willing to withdraw tariffs or commit to that at that point. Uh, and what we've seen since is an escalation in tariffs. There's a lot more tariffs in place now. The mistrust on both sides has grown over the summer, uh, and they're getting back to the table. But again, they're 
they're trying to figure out how to start having substantive negotiations again. That doesn't mean that they are having substantive <laughs> negotiations, and that doesn't mean that we're any closer to a deal today than we were before this call happened last night and they announced these talks last night. So, Sean, what does it mean typically, historically, when a country like China or the United States sends over a relatively high-level negotiating team? Does it, is it, you know, does that typically mean, oh boy, we're close to something, or we're serious, or can it just be for show? Uh, one, uh, in, in a, first of all, we're not in a normal situation in terms of, you know, history is a, a, a tough guide here uh, in terms of trade negotiations, just because of President Trump's approach to these things. We've seen that with uh, his approach to dealing with Japan, for example. We have a great story up on uh, uh, on Bloomberg today uh, from my colleague Jenny Leonard talking about there's, they're, how they're racing to try and work out some really important stuff in a deal that President Trump announced as being all all done at the G7, just a, a, a week or 10 days ago. And and they're still negotiating some really substantive stuff. And they're hoping to, to sign that deal or, or, or get announce a final deal at the, at the end of September. And you look at what's happening with China. Uh, it is not unusual for ministers to shuttle around the world as part of trade negotiations. That's what they do. That's what trade ministers do. That's what U.S. trade representatives have done for years. So in some ways, that's not meaningful in, in itself. But that's where this is different, right? Because over the summer, these negotiations broke down, and we are kind of seizing, and markets certainly are seizing, uh, on any news of the two sides even talking is, is something meaningful. So I, I, you know, I think we, we need to be really careful uh, in terms of uh, managing our own expectations uh, with these things. This does not mean that a deal is nigh. Uh, it, it just means that they're back to talking. I think that a lot of investors right now, and you'll talk to the people and they'll say, you know, we're trying to understand President Trump's motivations, the psychology, which, you know, good luck. But I think that there is a question here of President Trump. Does he go, kind of have a put on the market? People are counting on him to at some point close to the 2020 elections, try to make some sort of deal with China in order to give a boost to markets uh, and, and sort of uh, have, have sort of some momentum heading into the election. Is your sense from the people that you talk to that that belief is legitimate? Look, th- there's no doubt that President Trump has wanted to make a deal. That's that's in his nature. Uh, and the question is whether something has changed over the summer. And that's where what we're really trying to figure out. I, I've you know, had people close to this administration say to me as recently as yesterday that they thought that they were seeing a new hard line uh, from President Trump uh, in his tweets and that they thought that he had moved from wanting a deal to, to wanting – uh, to, to just sort of embracing this idea of the need for a, uh, a standoff with China, for someone to take on China. We saw that in his comments yesterday about where he literally said, you know, I don't care about the economy. This is bigger than the economy uh, when he was talking to reporters about the China talks. So, I mean, the swings in sentiment here are, are, are remarkable and it makes it really, really hard to try and, uh, you know, discern the signal from the noise. You know, that's what we try to do every day. We talk to people inside the administration, around the administration, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's hard to know on a day-to-day basis where the president wants to take this. And it changes on a day-to-day basis. 
So, Sean, just 30 seconds. Any sense of where China is? Has anything changed for China over the summer from your perspective? Yeah, I think what we hear from Beijing and what we hear from from people who who meet with uh, Chinese officials regularly is that there's been a change in Beijing in in, in their approach to this. They now believe that they are involved in a longer-term fight with the Chinese. They um, have a higher level of suspicion of Donald Trump uh, and his ability to deliver a deal. Uh, And uh, they are approaching this much more warily than they were even six months ago. Sean Donna, thank you so much. Uh, I feel like we're going to be talking to you a lot more going forward. There's still much more to go on this story, obviously. Sean Donna, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, talking to us from our D.C. Bureau. Crude very much getting a bid today on the heels of some softening in trade talks between the U.S. and China, or perhaps talks about talks about talks. We're seeing crude up uh, about 1% today following a 2.3% gain yesterday. But really, what is going to be the longer-term driver of crude prices? Joining us now, Stephen Shork, president of the Shork Group uh, group and editor of the Shork Report, uh, joining us on the phone. So, Stephen, let's just get started. Um Crude prices, they've been bouncing around pretty much in tandem with the, uh, the feeling from trade. How long is this sustainable? Uh, well, for the foreseeable future, we're going into, Lisa, now a v- very volatile time in the market. Uh, to your point, oil is rallying hard. We got some good numbers, ADP employment. We have some bullish support numbers from today's weekly update on petroleum stocks. Uh, but first and foremost, the driver currently now is the market's taken another hit of hopium. Uh, that is to say, hope that we might actually get some sort of resolution with the China uh, trade ref. Uh, so at this point, this is where the speculators are pouring their hearts and souls into. Uh, so going forward now, uh, when we talk about volatility, it is September. So over the next two months, oil refineries here in North America, in Northern Europe, are going to go into their maintenance season. So they're going to be buying fewer barrels as they shut in operations to get ready for the winter demand season. So when you take that fundamental out of the market, when you take that fundamental um, driver, that buyer out of the market, it creates a void. And when you have that void, you have the chance for volatility. So once again, we're going to be looking at markets that can continue over the next two, three months to trade off of headlines. Today, we happen to have a bullish headline. And so the market is finding good support here. So it's interesting when, you know, when we talk to you, um, Stephen, about the, you know, the energy markets, we always have discussions about the, you know, the, the demand side of the equation and the supply side of the equation. But it seems like what's really driving uh, oil prices, energy prices in, in general is really the demand side and again, tied very much to trade. Is that kind of how the traders are positioning themselves? Yes, and absolutely. And in fact, we ha- we had uh, some numbers that came out uh, the surveys before. And keep in mind, it, it, demand is still strong. The, the the economy is still finding support. It, it's just this this overhang of, of this trade riff, and and everyone's talking about potential recession. And we're, we're starting to see the pullback on the manufacturing side, and, and the manufacturing side tends to be a, a bellwether. So even though it is only ten to twelve percent of the U.S. economy. 
Uh, it's still a significant uh, driver, and, and that is really where the concern is. Um, so on the supply side, uh, look, we're, we're starting to de-glut the market here in the United States. Over the past month, we've had two major pipelines that have started shipping crude oil out of the West Texas Permian Basin to the export markets near in Corpus Christi. Uh, by the end of the year, we'll have another pipeline that comes online. So our takeaway capacity with all that oil being produced in West Texas is going to increase by, by two-thirds. So we're starting to deglut and we're starting to balance the market at this point. So yes, it is the demand. And, and keep in mind, the underlying economic demand story is still firm at this point, but it's all about the future. It's all about perception. And right now, uh, people are, are very cautious. And that is certainly a concern that is overhanging uh, the commodity markets. Stephen, I remember when people cared about what was going on with respect to Iran, what was happening with what was, uh, yeah. with respect to uh, Libya, Venezuela, Argentina. Yeah. I mean, there are all of these issues that used to matter and that don't seem to anymore. Yep. And again, <laughs> right. And to your point, it's an excellent point. And it's all about perception. I mean, OPEC, uh, when's the last time a headline of OPEC actually moved this market? Uh, this is a U.S.-centric story. United States is the 900-pound gorilla in the oil market at this point. Uh, we are a burgeoning export uh, powerhouse uh, with all this production coming out. And, and that kind of masks what, you know, the concerns here. To your point, Iran, uh, Venezuela, right? Venezuela used to be uh, our fourth largest supplier of crude oil, and now their production has has uh, fallen off significantly. And so that is the concern that potentially that we'll start to see a the, the pullback in demand. Uh, you know, that is being masked right now by the loss of supply. And, and all it's going to take is, is one, one good, good disruption. And uh, it, you know, all, all this go, goes to naught. Stephen, what are your thoughts on the natural gas market as we look ahead to uh, kind of the colder months coming up? Uh, it's pathetic. I mean, the natural gas market. Is, <laughs> and done. Is, is, we finished is, that up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, uh, natural gas market is getting a nice rally right now. If, and I've been telling all my hedging, hedging clients in the short report that over the past month, if you have not been buying every single molecule of natural gas at these levels for your winter needs, you're really being foolish because the market is really gifting you this opportunity. Uh, to that point, we have so much gas. There is the pullback on the industrial side. So that is an overhang. Supplies are plentiful, uh, but the market has rallied about 20 cents a decatherm uh, over the past month. And that is because Wall Street speculators have never been more bearish this market. So this is a market that is extremely oversold. So we're getting kind of a counter uh, intuitive rise in price right now, which probably has a lot of speculators scratching their head because the fundamentals are so bearish. So that's to say that we tend to see in the natural gas market, we get this rally uh, before the winter, before the heat, heating season uh, kicks in. And I think we're in the midst of that. How high can we go? Uh, our quant models right now are looking at potentially this month, we could see natural gas prices rally about another 40 cents higher, uh, which would really be a more of a short covering rally, not fundamentally driven. But we're looking going into the winter market that if you're hedging, you, you should have been buying, you'll still have opportunities. Right. We're in the midst of a counter, um, a short covering rally, but the right. overall is still bearish. Stephen Shork, thanks so much for that uh, overview. Excellent overview, as always, on the energy markets looking to crude and natty gas at the moment. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, Stephen Shork, president of Shork Group, uh, phoning in from Pennsylvania. 
Right now, we have the honor of speaking with AutoNation's new chief executive officer, Cheryl Miller. Uh, she uh, came in about 45 days ago uh, to head AutoNation, which uh, she's normally based in, in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, but she's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Cheryl, congratulations. The shares of the company up more than 36% year to date. I want to start with the transition in your first 45 days, taking over after a very brief stint uh, for the previous CEO, Carl Liebert. So what what's it been like, given the fact that it's been a little bit tumultuous over the past couple months? Yes, it's great to be here today with you, Lisa, and with you, Paul. And it's been great. The last 45 days have been fantastic. And coming in, my core focus was execution, right? So we're an operating business, execution of our existing play, and then also making sure we're working on this AutoNation brand extension strategy. So when I stepped into the role, I met immediately with our leadership team. I've known for many years our operational leadership team. I met with them personally. We talked about the strategy, had their full confidence, and I also met with the corporate team. I reminded the corporate team, as we always do, that our focus is on servicing our customers and and really pulled together that leadership team to focus on the core. I've had some initial OEM discussions, but certainly I've known many of them, having been in the industry for years as well. So I'm just looking at the stock. The stock's done well up 37% this year, yet there's only one analyst recommending it and nine have a hold and there's a couple sells. What are the, what's the bear case out there? What are analysts not seeing having missed kind of this run up in the stock? Yeah, so Paul, I think it's a great observation. I think what people are missing is really the thought out there has been, are we at peak auto? And if you think about that, years ago, we knew we would have a gradual climb out of those lower SAR levels. And we always said we thought we would level off somewhere between 16 and 17 million units of sales. And and that is where we have leveled off. But keep in mind that we're not just about new vehicle sales. We also do a lot of nearly new. And you've seen the customer preference shift somewhat towards nearly new. And we also have the service aspects of the business. And so I think the analyst thesis has been around sort of peak auto. And I think we've got a lot more than that. And you've been with AutoNation for years, so you have a sense of the sort of uh, the the breakdown between used and new cars and car sales. Can you speak a little bit more about the shift that you've seen recently in preference for almost new vehicles uh, by the U.S. consumer? Yeah, absolutely. So I've certainly been in the industry for a while, and my one of my fun facts is the fact that I actually was at AutoNation the first time before Mike. So I was uh, was there back in '98, and I saw the early days of the company through the evolution to day. But as I think about the consumer, um, think about most of the customers coming back into our showrooms or coming online to interact with us. The last time they may have purchased a vehicle could have been when interest rates were basically at zero. So now they're coming back in. And although rates, fortunately, we're not going to have the hikes we originally anticipated this year, but but rates are a little higher than zero, certainly. And customer affordability is a little bit tougher. So the average new vehicle payment monthly is $550 a month. So for some customers, there's a little bit of a sticker shock as they come into the stores. And therefore, they look over to the side and say, hey, that's, that's a, a nearly new vehicle. It's got great technology. It may be two to three, four years old. And they'll opt in for that. So we're actually seeing very strong pre-owned sales this year and you've seen us with two record quarters and part of that was supported by great pre-owned sales. 
So I'm just looking at the uh, consensus estimates out on the on the Bloomberg terminal. Not much revenue growth, uh, but uh, some very strong margins here. So give us a sense of kind of the business mix for you guys between kind of the the sales of cars and maybe the services for your business and kind of w which is really driving the growth for you. Yes, if you think about the growth drivers within the business, the, the service or what we call customer care side of the business has great margins. So those margins are in the 45% range, plus or minus, compared to new and used vehicle sales that are, in the case of used vehicles, sub 8%, new vehicle sales certainly much lower on a percentage basis. So as we continue to shift and focus on growth in the customer care side of the business, you're seeing some margin improvement, but also flow through. So if you think about our bottom line improvement, uh, we've made some good steps with respect to SG&A. So, so the nice thing of having said in the CFO role previously is that continued focus on cost optimization. So going forward, you know, you talked a little bit about how people, analysts perhaps, are thinking more about are we hitting peak auto than they are your specific business model. But that you, you can't lose sight of that either, right? The whole idea that car that the cost of cars is getting a lot more expensive as companies try to offset the fact that people are buying fewer of them. So what is sort of the key price level that you're seeing as the sweet spot where sales are continuing? And sort of what's the sort of a tipping point at which point sales drop off? Well, one of the great things about that question relative to price for the consumer is we're going to have a little bit of a tailwind with interest rates. So coming into the year thinking we might have three hikes versus now having one cut so far, and hopefully within the next month here, you may see a second cut uh, with respect to rates, that actually improves affordability. So as I think about that that provides some more balance for the customer. So it provides them a little bit more running room. But at the same time, if people aren't buying new, maybe they're buying nearly new. If they're not buying nearly new, they're holding their vehicles. And we saw this play out in the recession back in 2008, 2009. It's a counter cyclical part of our business, parts and service. Because if you're not buying, you need to service and maintain your existing vehicle. So that's the way I think about the composition of the business. But I'm also excited to have one foot into the future and thinking about relationships, strategic partnerships like Waymo, where we're thinking about forward-looking consumer mobility, which may look a little bit different than it has in the past. One of the things you mentioned, just peak auto, are you concerned that Uber and Lyft and those types of things are gonna result in fewer people driving? It's a really interesting question, Paul. And so the way I think about it is, when you look at what Uber and Lyft have replaced to date, They've really replaced a lot of the shared use. So think taxi cabs where we he are here today in New York City. Uh, think about rental car companies. That's really a lot of what it is replaced today. What we are hearing from customers is they'll occasionally take an Uber or Lyft. If they're going out to dinner, if they're going into the city, somewhere it's expensive to park, we have not really seen it replacing traditional ownership at this stage. But we'll continue to, to watch the market as it evolves. And as we look at our core capabilities, we've got great retail locations. Uh, we've got a ton of experience selling 12 million vehicles, servicing 45 million vehicles. And so we've got great experience to meet the customer where they are. But at this point, the customer isn't dropping off their car in droves and, uh, and opting exclusively for Uber or Lyft. So let's talk a little bit about the Waymo partnership, because uh, you did mention it. And AutoNation does have uh, some partnership with them. Can you describe a little bit more about that? Waymo, of course, is the uh, the self-driving project formerly uh, of Google, now an Alphabet company. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I had the uh, great opportunity in 2017 
to be at the starting point of that relationship. So being out in Phoenix, where that was started, as well as in discussions out in California. And as we looked at this potential relationship, I had to say, what is AutoNation really good at? What core competencies does AutoNation bring to the table that may or may not be things that Waymo is interested as a company in doing directly? And that really came down to service. So if you think about the quality of our technicians, the technical complexity of vehicles, we're really good at the the hard stuff. And so if you think about hybrids and electrics, we've serviced a ton of hybrid and electrics already. We were ready to think about how do we service autonomous. Wait, this is this is fascinating because there have, there's been a big discussion about self-driving vehicles and who would be the maintainer of those, right? Would it be? We will the, be. Okay. Well, this is really interesting, right? And it's sort of uh, at the intersection of a lot of people think is this sort of sea change in the way people get around. The question is, are we really gaining the kind of traction in the self-driving space that a lot of people had thought that we would at this point? It's really early days. It's a great point. So the, the great thing is we want to have a foot in the future. We want to be learning today and we want to be assisting today. So the way I think about it is we bring these great technicians and now they're, they're, they're used to working on complex vehicles. So if you think about ADAS and all that technology that's already in the car's lane assist, they're working on things with sensors and computers today already. This is an expansion of that great technician base where we have existing technicians that are now learning how to work around and on autonomous vehicles. So it's something that's really within our sweet spot. We also have great retail locations. So if you think about it, where do customers live and work? AutoNation is located near where customers live and work, not in a remote area. So we're already around that daily traffic flow of where customers live and work, and that's where they where they want their vehicles to be traveling. So you're obviously with all your locations and, and the sales and service, you have a great feel for the consumer. We, you know, despite slowing manufacturing data and what, whatever, we see it pretty strong consumer. What what are your what are you seeing on the ground in your business, just as it relates to kind of the health of the consumer? So what we're seeing in AutoNation is is pretty good health of the consumer, right? People have jobs, and that's the great thing. When I contrast that to how it felt back in 2008, 2009, when jobs were tough, it, it feels decidedly different. That being said, we've talked about affordability. So I think a little bit of relief on the interest rates will help with that. But fundamentally, I'm seeing a pretty strong consumer showing up in our in our stores and online. This has been fascinating. Cheryl Miller, thank you so much for being with us and congratulations on your first 45 days. Cheryl Miller is Chief Executive Officer and President of AutoNation, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Uh, she came into the company about 45 days ago after its long-term uh, uh, leader and now the company's chairman, Mike Jackson, stepped down in a brief tenure uh, by another uh, temporary executive. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.